Thank you, Paul. We will get to that in a few moments. But first, we're going to spend some time in prayer. Um, if you think about it, pray for the children's ministry. Um, Don and his wife and, and Amber are out, out with COVID this week, and they're not doing so good. They're pretty weak. I was talking with Don last night, and uh, I said, I'm sure the kids will survive. I'm not so sure about Renee and Rob, but I think the kids will survive. <laughs> Unfortunately, the kids get to spend the, week, the morning with Santa Claus, so that's good. Yeah. But they've, they've got a whole thing. And it's so great to have volunteers here in the church who can really step up and, uh, and fill the gaps when we need them. So we really appreciate them. Um, we're going to pray, but we're gonna do it, we've done this before. We do this occasionally here at Shepherd. Um, and I'm just going to lead you in prayer this morning and uh, spend some time in silence. And uh, just for a few minutes and let you um, say some honest things to God this morning. So um, as we enter prayer together, I want to just to pause and be still. And uh, let's uh, take a few minutes. To take all these scattered thoughts and worries and recenter them on the presence of God. Psalm 63 says we... Um, we draw near to please, and we ask you to please draw near to us. And so we choose to rejoice in God's presence this morning, and I want to join uh, with the ancient praise of God's people from Psalm 63. God, you are my God. I can't get enough of you. I've worked up such hunger and thirst for God, traveling across dry and weary deserts. So here I am in the place of worship, eyes open, Drinking in your strength and glory, in your generous love, I am really living at last. And so I'm going to walk us through this, the Lord's Prayer that he gave us, and just invite you to spend some time with the Lord this morning. Jesus starts off and he says, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lord, I imagine myself sitting before you as a, as a loving father, one who loves me, and in my words, I want to express one of the many reasons I love you today. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I remember the news headlines that I've read recently. And I want to pick one situation to pray about, Father. What is your will here? I ask for hope, healing, and wholeness of your kingdom to invade this situation. Give us today our daily bread. What do I need today? Lord, instead of worrying, I am choosing to pray, and I trust you will provide what I truly need.
Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Holy Spirit, please show me two things. Some way in which I have let you down and someone whose wrongdoing I am choosing to hold against them. And so as I humble myself to receive your forgiveness, soften my heart to in turn forgive them. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, I think about the day and the week ahead. Please strengthen and protect me in every situation that I face. Father, we thank you for this incredible invitation to talk to you as our Father, and we accept. We accept that invitation. Lord, we ask that you teach us to imitate Jesus, that we make space every day in the coming week for an intimate and honest conversation with you. And we take it by faith what the psalmist says, that the Lord who loves me and the Lord who loves me has surely listened and has heard my prayer. So, Father, we thank you for listening to us. We do pray that we look inside and we have true, honest words to speak to you as we hear honest words from you. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. We have started a new series this last, uh, last week on Colossians and uh, calling it Rooted in Wisdom, Rooted in the Wisdom of Christ. And we're going to be looking at the next uh, paragraph. Um, you know, I hear a lot, uh, a lot of people, and I've said similar things uh, myself, but I listen to podcasts or read articles and things, and I hear a lot of people talk about how the world today is uh, very similar to uh, the church, how the church existed in the first century under Rome, and uh, that we're living in these times and we need to redirect our efforts toward mission work, and, and these are the kind of things we're living in a, in a secular society and I understand that, I get that, but when you look really closely, it's really not the same. It's really not the same. When people talk about that, that's usually because they're saying we, have, we live now in a secular society, uh, a post-Christian society, and uh, what you, we, the position we used to have as Christians at the church of privilege and influence, that kind of has been slipping away and diminishing it. And so we say, well, it's kind of like the first century, the first church in Rome, that's kind of what it, what it feels like. But if you look at Rome, it really isn't all that uh, similar. I mean, we can romanticize the past, how we think the past was, and, uh, and lament the present, how we think it is, but it really wasn't like Rome. This, this movement away from Christianity and, and into a secular society, we think happened in the last 20 years. But, uh, but I've read theologians that wrote like in 1910, 1912, and they talk about us facing this antagonism uh, just like Athanasius and Augustine had to face back in the early days. So this isn't really that new, okay? It's not that, not that recent. It's recent for us, maybe, but not that recent as far as history is concerned. But when we look at Rome, we see a lot of things that are, that are different. Uh, the empire of Rome was vast. 
It was, it was huge. It was a diverse people with peoples that didn't have anything in common with language or economics or religion. Nothing in common like that. Uh, most of the people who lived in, under the Roman Empire, they, um, they, they didn't like it. They resented it. They even hated the Romans. Uh, in a lot of ways, there was no sense of any idea of any uh, democratic leadership or any kind of uh, inclusivity or anything like that. There was a definite division between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, the, the hierarchy was just, you know, was just huge. The people were suffering under, under poverty. These Hollywood visions that we see of sandals and swords, that's not really the way it was. It's, uh, it was pretty, pretty miserable for most people. Uh, one of the leading church historians in his book called Cities of God, he's, a, he's written some really great stuff about the rise of Christianity in the early years. Rodney Stark, he says this, Greco-Roman cities were small, extremely crowded, filthy beyond imagination, disorderly, filled with strangers, and afflicted with frequent catastrophes like fires, plagues, conquests, and earthquakes. Unlike Western urban life today, where even the poor have access to marginally acceptable services, life in antiquity abound in anxiety and misery for nearly everyone. It was not a good place to be. So when you think about that and you keep that in a picture in the, back mind, in the, in the background of your, of your mind while you're reading Colossians, it really tells you just how impactful and how powerful this prayer was that Paul, well, the whole book actually, but this prayer that we're looking at, that he prayed for the Colossians and how important that was. It wasn't just pretty words. It wasn't just sentimental thoughts. This was people who were, you know, truly, truly suffering and, uh, and, and really had no sense of what we would call convenience at all. Uh, it was not a good place to be. So when you look at this prayer and you hear it, kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Last week we looked at the beginning of the prayer where Paul is kind of giving thanksgiving for the Colossians. He's very thankful. He's praising God, one, because of their stellar reputation of people who follow Christ. And he's also thankful for the word of the gospel that has taken root and become fruitful there in Colossae uh, among those people. And then he wants them to, to know a few things. He wants them to know that they're not alone. He wants them to know that this is, this is, uh, this is going to bring fruit where you are. And he wants them to know that they have this really good friend, Epaphras, who, who was there tell, sharing the gospel with them, praying for them every single day, and sharing the news with Paul that, this was, that there was things to, to be thankful for and things that they needed to know about the goodness of God. The second half of the prayer is all petition. And it's one of these things that's unusual for Paul because it practically outlines itself, and which is really kind of unusual for Paul's letters. And as we get in, you'll see it's just kind of, I mean, he's the king of run-on sentences. Uh, but uh, he, uh, he, <clears throat> he has this prayer, this is what his petition is, and we'll be looking at this a little bit later. For this reason, we also, from the day we heard about you, have not ceased praying for you, and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good deed. Growing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For the display and all patience, uh, of all patience and steadfastness. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the saints inheritance in the light. He delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One of the reasons I wanted Paul to read this passage, what I want to do as we go through the book of, of Colossians, 
is that Paul writes, and not in all of his letters, but, but Colossians is a good example of this, it is completely Christocentric. I mean, it is all based on who Jesus is and his ministry and his teaching. <clears throat> and so what I want to do as we go through this is kind of pair it with what Jesus is saying in the Gospels. And I think what, what, what I had Paul Armadine, not the Apostle Paul, <laughs> read from, uh, from Luke chapter 10 was that wonderful t- the, uh, command of the great commandment and then the story of the Good Samaritan. Because that's what he's getting at here. He is calling for the Colossians to be great command Christians. He's calling them to reorder their lives under this umbrella of the great command of devotion and ethics. So he's calling them and he's saying they, he's, he wants them to be a devoted people to God, a virtuous people to their society, to the people around them, all on the foundation because they are a rescued people. And it just kind of outlines itself here. He is calling them to love God, to deepen their relationship with God. He's calling them to, to live a virtuous life, an ethical life with the people around him. And it's all based because they are a rescued people, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so that's what we're going to kind of uh, unpack a little bit today and, and kind of uh, break down some today, is what does all this mean? He starts off with this uh, petition, the second half, that I'm calling you to deepen your relationship with God. For this reason, from this day, we continually pray for you that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will in spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. They want them to be filled with what God wants for them, what God wants in them, their lives, or what he desires, his will. Now, when we think of God's will, a lot of times in, in, in our very individualistic culture, we think, what does God want for my wife? I want to find the will of God for my life. And so we've kind of had this idea that there's this bullseye for God's will for me, and I've got to hit that bullseye. <clears throat> if I don't hit that bullseye, then I'm living out of God's will. And that's kind of one of the ideas we're thinking about. Uh, you know, should I marry this person or not? Uh, should I go to this college or another college? Or should I just should I enter the workforce as this? And where should I live? Should I take this new job? What is God's will for all this? And I'm not saying that God's not interested in that, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about finding God's perfect will for my life and hitting that bullseye so that I have a life that's all good and wonderful. He's also not talking about adding more knowledge to your doctrinal, doctrinal system. He's not talking about adding bullet points to your theology, okay? That I want to go God's will, that I, that I, uh, I just need a more sophisticated doctrine here and just learn more about God. He is calling us to learn to know God. And it's a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And that's what he's calling us to do, to, to get the mind of Christ, to obtain the mind of Christ and so we know spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. That he wants, to, he wants them to see what God is doing in the world, what God is doing in creation. And he wants them to see how they fit into what God is doing. It's not just about me. It's not just about my faith and my, my, uh, my own security. It's not about guiding God's will in my life. It's not even developing a theology. It's about what is God doing. And he, he's saying we can do that. We know God's will if we grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, humans have an incredible ability to take a gift and make it legalistic. We do a great job at that. We take something that God has given us and we made it into a law. Uh, 
one of the things I, I learned in this, in this uh, Dutch Reformed community where I used to, used to work at, at this, this Dutch Reformed college was, was uh, they, what they gave me was a, was a deep appreciation for the Sabbath. But to me, they carried it to the extreme where people would wash their cars in their garage because they didn't want anybody to see them washing their car on the Sabbath, on Sunday. Uh, they wouldn't mow their yard on Sunday. And uh, I have a friend who had a ministry that uh, they were partnered with Mendenhall, Mississippi, and he was using truck drivers to, uh, to deliver goods and stuff down to this poverty-stricken area down in the Mississippi Delta. <clears throat> and I was talking to him one time, and he goes, yeah, he goes, I, I lost a driver once, and I wish I had told him to go around the town and not go through town, because they were using volunteer truck drivers, and he said, well, I can drive it, I can take off on Sunday, and they go, okay, so he drives through town on Sunday, and he lost two board members because they couldn't support a ministry that made their drivers work on Sunday. So we can take these things into the extreme and make laws out of them. However, these things are a gift of God. We've got to remember, for example, the Sabbath is a gift of God. And what we're talking about here, this gift of wisdom and understanding, spiritual gifts and understanding, it's something else. It's living in the culture. And Jesus is the example of that. Jesus lived in full wisdom, in full wisdom. He knew where things were. He knew what God was doing. In John chapter 9, they, they, they accused him of breaking the law because he healed a man on the Sabbath. He made him see on the Sabbath. And so he broke the law. And this is not just a minor law. This is one of the Ten Commandments. And they accused him of breaking the law. Uh, you're not really from God because they even said that. You can't be from God because you did this. But Jesus knows wisdom. He knows that the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. It was a gift. And he understood that this person's well-being was more important than keeping some additional little stipulation that the, the, the authorities had put on the law. He lived in wisdom. And what I'm trying to say here is that we live in a gray world. And, and we can't treat the Bible as, this, as an owner's manual, like a car's owner's manual where you look it up, and oh, I need to change my windshield wipers, how do I do that? And then find a place and it goes, tells me exactly how to change my windshield wipers. We have this picture of what God is doing. And, we, and, God, and Paul expects us to live with wisdom. I mean, we're facing things today that Paul would never have imagined in the first century. And we have to use wisdom for that. We have to use wisdom about what God is doing and what, how is he operating in this world? What does the gospel mean in this situation? And he says we do that by, by spending time with God, by investing in, in, in God's, in, in being devoted to him and his word and his, his, his uh, direction. Wisdom is, a, is very, very much part of Jewish, Jewish uh, uh, history and Jewish thought. Not just the Proverbs, the whole Old Testament. In fact, some scholars even say that, that the word wisdom and is almost a second name for God. And some people have said maybe wisdom is another name for Holy Spirit. I, we don't know that. But my point is that this is, this is so important to God that it just, it just bays the scriptures, this wisdom. And he's saying, Paul is saying, this is how you outthink the world. This is how you live in a world full of deceit and lies with wisdom, with God's wisdom, knowing the mind of Christ. And that's how we operate. And he says, that's how we do it. 
And so he's praying every day that they know what God's up to by spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's where he, that's the, that's where he base it. And then he goes on to say, for why? What, what's the purpose? Uh, okay, I get this wisdom. To what end? And he says, so that you will live worthy of the Lord. The word there is really, the, really is a walk. You will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And that's what the Jews talked about. The, the Hebrew word there is halal, and it just means to walk. It's just your behavior. It's, it's ethically putting one foot in front of the other. It's not necessarily all grand heroic works. It's just living worthily of the Lord. It's not some esoteric belief or philosophy. It's living worthy of the Lord. Just walking with him. And Jesus is delighted when you just take those first few steps. You decide, this is the path I'm going to take. This is the path I'm going. This is how we reflect Jesus. This is how we see the reflection of Jesus. This is how people see Jesus is through how we walk with the Lord. And Paul understood that. That it's not flashy, it's not heroic. Sometimes it is but it's usually just how we live. And Paul understood also that this is a decisive moment, that when you decide to do this, there will be consequences. There will be consequences. And he knew that there would be consequences in Rome, that there would be pushback in Rome. That they would, and that's exactly what happened. They would say that they, they, they're divisive, these people have their own behavior, their own rules. They're, 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 they're throwing away the loyalty of the Roman Empire. They're not sacrificing to our gods. These people are dangerous people. And he says, this is just how we knew. Yes, we do challenge the status quo. And the defenders of Christianity and the critics of Christianity, they all knew that there was transformative power in this message. There was transformative power in the gospel that people changed after reading, hearing this, that people like, who were at the bottom of the social ladder, the women, the peasants, the slaves, they suddenly had meaning and their lives were changed. And yet they were called immoral, they were called, they had secret rituals, they said, and we, and we can't trust them. But the, Paul has encouraged them to stay the, stay the course, be strong. He says, be strong in the power of the glory and that's very important because whenever the glory of God is manifested amazing things happen whenever the Bible talks about the glory of God being manifested like in Exodus things happen powerful things happen in the temple powerful things happen when Isaiah saw the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 6 and he, he fell on his knees and he said send me things happen the transfiguration things happen the resurrection, the glory of his resurrection, things happen. And he's saying you will be strengthened with the power of his glory. And we need to be strengthened because we will be accused. We can be criticized. We can be misunderstood. And he's saying stay on the path. Stay on the path. Powerful things happen with the glory of God. It's not just some shimmering light. It's, a, it's something that gives strength. And he's saying, but far from, being, far from being divisive, it is just the opposite. As Christians, it is inclusive. 
He says, now giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance and the light. What he's telling the Colossians is that now you are part of the story. The story that you heard in about the Exodus, the story that you heard about Israel and God renewing the covenant, he says now you are part of that story. And everyone is invited. Everyone can be there. Women, peasants, slaves, everything that everybody that was used to be on the outside is now invited. And basically what he's saying is that this gospel of Jesus is also the gospel of mended lives. And we can be joining that. And he says we go on to give thanks joyfully. That's the, that's the appropriate response. To give thanks joyfully. It is a gift. It is not something we had to fight tooth and nail to obtain. It is a gift. And the proper response for a gift is gratitude. There is a lot of things that, that are unjoyful. I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm sure you're experiencing in your house. There's a lot of things that I'm experiencing in my house these days that is very unjoyful. Um, don't know when my wife is going to get off crutches. have no idea. Very, very unjoyful. But still, the way to live joyfully is to live a life of gratitude. Being grateful, that brings joy. Being grateful. We, maybe, maybe God's not going to work out the things the way that we think they should, but we do know for sure that they will be worked out according to his plan. They will be worked out. And somehow or another, there will be good coming out of it. I don't know how all the time, but we trust God to do that. And so we live with gratitude. And we're not talking about this, when he talks about joyfully, he's not saying, you know, you paste this superficial smile on your face or you have this superficial happiness of giggling or whatever. It's just a matter of living gratefully. And I really have learned this from my wife who keeps a very careful journal of gratitude every single day. And that's what helps her keep a focus on what's going on, that this is what God is doing. And it comes through faith, knowing that God will work it out. Living with gratitude gives us wisdom, gives us understanding. This closing verse, it's like this is the foundation that it's all built on. He delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, His forgiveness of sins. When Paul is talking about this, he kind of uses, Paul always does this, and I don't think we really we appreciate his work on this, that he, he continually echoes the Old Testament. I mean, he's a Jew, he's a, he's a, he's a Pharisee, he's a scholar. And so he's constantly echoing the Old Testament. And I think he's echoing two things here. One, he's looking at the Exodus. And he says, when God called his people out of, G out of Egypt, he said, I will, I will be with you. I will, you promised you my presence. I will be your king and you will be my citizens. And that's what he's promised. And he's saying, you guys are part of this now too that I am your king and now you are my citizens. And I love it. And he also, I think, is, he kind of refers to this, this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1 and Nehemiah chapter 6, chapter 9, I'm sorry, uh, this prayer of, of Nehemiah personally and then the people's prayer in chapter 9 
where they basically say, we have failed. We have failed miserably. And we seek forgiveness. And forgiveness in, the, in Nehemiah and the forgiveness in, in Exodus is not just patting you on the head. It's, That's okay. It's all right. Forgiveness is a restoration to God himself. That when we are forgiven, we are restored. He's saying that Jesus is this bridge to enter into our lives. You know, I've always seen that illustration of the bridge that Jesus is like the cross and so we can walk across the cross of this bridge to heaven. I, I think the, it's the other way around. There is a bridge, but it's him to us. It always goes from him to us. And it's the bridge to enter into us. And like the Nehemiah prayer, yes, we have failed miserably, but he says, I restore you to myself. We sang about this new creation this morning, and that's what we're looking forward to. We are headed toward the promised land, and it is whole, and it is good, and we will be whole. And I almost started crying. We had that one phrase in that one song, who is whole, who is good? And it's just like, you just, I was overwhelmed. It was like, not me, that's for sure. But the Messiah is. And he's built the bridge to our hearts to come into and we are restored to him. Yes, we have failed, but we are restored. And we're on the way to the promised land. I've spent a lot of time this week thinking, what is this power of darkness? It's also been translated like a kingdom of darkness, uh, kind of with the parallel with the kingdom of the sun. And I'm thinking, what, what are they talking about here? And I'm thinking of the Colossians under Roman tyranny. And I'm thinking, okay, this is the kingdom of darkness. A system of tyranny, a system of fear, a system of suspicion, a system of greed that you need to, to, to hit this guy before he hits you. You don't trust anybody. You're cynical about the whole system. And it's a system that works on fear. If I can get people to be afraid, then I can control them. And Jesus and Paul is saying, your fear, you have no reason to fear anymore. This is the system he is, he is releasing you from. You are free from this system. We are free from this system. We look at our system and depending on your social status, your color of your skin, all kinds of things, depends on how you, how you relate, where, where are you, how do you how, what's going on around you. The system is somewhere else. We are citizens of a new reality, he says. We have been transferred from one kingdom to another, one of darkness and fear and suspicion and cynicism and greed and anger to a system of light. But I also think there might be another point of darkness here. And I'm thinking about the darkness on the inside. Some spiritual leaders call this the shadow lands, of dealing with the shadow lands. It's that part of us that I refuse to see, and I don't want any of you to see it. It's that part of me that I want to keep, and I have this cultivated, curated persona that I portray, and this is the one I want everyone to see, and I don't deal with the, the, the shadow lands, and I want to protect my shadow. And it's whatever that curated persona is. It could be the ideal mom 
or the, or the, the doctor or the professor or the teacher or the friend, the nice guy, or the generous person, whatever that is, we want to portray that, and we don't deal with the shadow, the darkness, the kingdom of the heart. And we don't deal with that shadow land. And <clears throat> uh, it's really, really tough for the professional religious types because we have to maintain this kind of persona, and we don't like to see the shadow lands. And I certainly don't want you to see the Shadowlands. And so we don't deal with it. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, he says, your eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is healthy, in other words, if you're able to see the grace and believe and the faith, your body will be full of light. But if your eye is diseased, you're all squinty-eyed and, and you're all looking through things through, through anger and greedy, greed and, and uh, selfishness and seeing all this thing and suspicion, if your eyes are diseased, your whole body's going to be full of darkness. And if then the light is you, in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, it's really, really dark. And I'm wondering if this is another thing Paul has in mind, this image of, of this shadow lands. This, this, we, want to, we have this persona that we've created. You've got to know that your self-image is exactly that, your self-image. You invented it, Okay. You, de you designed it, you, uh, you you've taken all your desires, all your hurts, everything, and you've designed your self-image. And Paul is calling us to say, we got another image here. We have another image here, and that is a child of God. And yes, we need to deal with the shadow lands. And it's a lifelong process. We will do this until the end comes. The good news is, uh, I'm 65 now. The good news is, it doesn't surprise me anymore. <laughs> it's still there, it just doesn't surprise me. And so I've kind of made friends with it in a way and realized that, that it's forgiven and it's been rescued. I have been rescued and I have been forgiven. And so when it pops up, when it shows up, I go, yeah, that's you again. But you're not going to accuse me. Because I've been rescued. I've been rescued by Jesus. And I think men, we are capable of so much more. But I think we've got to deal with the shadow land. I think we have a harder time dealing with it normally than the women do. We have to deal with the shadow. We have to do the shadow boxing, so to speak. The people who don't, they're boring anyway. <laughs> and what we end up with is boring, angry old men. But we have to deal with the shadow. We have been transferred from the shadow to the light. And we need to let it do its work. Over the last hundred years or so, especially in the West, Christianity has been bifurcated, been two, two camps, basically, liberal and conservative. And uh, <clears throat> the liberal brand of Christianity, they, uh, they're very big on ethics. They're very big on the ethic part of social justice and against social ills and caring for the community and reaching out and doing good things. 
but they've not been so great at presenting God who he is. They uh, kind of keep him off stage a little bit. Uh, I always say that they, they fall in love with love, which is great. They, they, they love, which is great, but they fall in love with love, and God's kind of off stage. And I'm not so sure the conservatives have done much better. Uh, they've kind of emphasized uh, believing right. You've got to believe the right things, and you've got to say it the right way, or you're not in. You're not one of us. Or if you come from a Pentecostal tradition, it's because you have the right experience you're in. If you don't, well, maybe you, know, you need to do something else. And we've had a hard time putting God forward as someone, as a God who is lovable. This is something who we're supposed to do and believe and say right. And we haven't been that great at ethics, except in the area of sexuality. That seems to be the one we're most concerned about. But any theology, any theology, this is the acid test of a good theology. If we're not putting God in front of people, a God who is lovable, a God who is friendly, accessible, and completely competent as the God of the universe, if you say your theology, has, has your theology presented a God like that? If you say, mm, not really, then you need to look somewhere else. You need to go deeper into the relationship with God. If he is not lovable, if we don't present a God who is being able to be loved by us, then we have got it wrong. Now, I'm not saying... I'm not trying to deny his righteousness or his justice. But even his wrath comes out of love. His wrath is, ma is manifested when his love meets injustice. And so we present this God who is lovable. And that's what he's calling us to do in, in, this, in this prayer. Devote ourselves to where we have the mind of Christ, but not just so we know stuff, but so we live stuff that we live the gospel, that we reorder our lives around the great command of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what this prayer is all about. It's beyond romanticism. It's beyond being nostalgic. That is the wisdom of ancient Christianity. It is a deeper devotion for a love of God and is manifested in our way we treat our neighbors. I have this, um, we have an, a document, I say we, historians have a document that dates back to about 150 A.D., right after Colossians were, were written. And uh, it's one man trying to describe what these Christians were like to another man. And he says, this, is, this was his assessment. He says, for the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe, for they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a particular or peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation or inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves to be advocates of a merely human doctrine, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities according to the lot of each of them, has determined, following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, but they display to us their wonderful, confessedly striking method of life. 
They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They live, they pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and they are persecuted by all men. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are all in lack of things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet, the, the very, yet in their dishonor, they are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed, but they are in, when, they, when they are insulted, they repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as the foreigners, and they are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason at all for their hatred. Devoted to the Lord and loving their neighbor. That's what Paul is asking the Colossians to do. And that is the wisdom. That is the ancient spiritual wisdom that we find in the book of Colossians. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. Father, we are, we are struck and convicted by this prayer, this simple prayer that Paul prayed. Father, we want to accept the invitation to open the door to you, and we invite you to come eat with us in every way possible. In Jesus' name, amen.